Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. 2023 will be the year that we learn the energy crisis is really an energy perma-crisis. 2023 will be the year when the EU decides to kind of uphold its liberal trade values or goes more into the protectionist trade route. 2023 will determine if Europe can be the West digital policeman or not. 2023 will be the year that the Green Deal, the EU's climate and environment package, needs to be delivered. 2023 is here and the EU machine is slowly kicking back into gear. Officials and diplomats are making their way back to Brussels from their home countries or maybe the odd ski resort across Europe. The optimists among them are probably hoping that this could be the year that the European Union really comes into its own and tackles ambitious challenges like energy, inflation, war and migration in a coordinated fashion while standing up for democratic values within the bloc and of course supporting Ukraine's fight for freedom against Russia. But others are tiptoeing back into town. Already, European countries are struggling to coordinate when it comes to the threat of a new potential coronavirus wave from China. And the divisions don't just stop there. EU countries are still divided on how to tackle crippling energy prices. They still can't unite around a single position when it comes to China still can't agree on how to best support European industry and still can't find a way to handle migration issues equitably, though it's been trying for seven long years. But hey, maybe 2023 is the year. Maybe these issues will be resolved swiftly and in lockstep. But I've been covering Brussels long enough to know that finding consensus on these issues will be anything but easy. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And welcome back to EU Confidential. Whether you've been listening since we launched back in 2017 or your New Year's resolution is to learn more about the EU and you've stumbled upon us, we're delighted to have you. By the end of this episode, you'll have a full overview of the major issues facing the European Union in the year ahead. And we'll update you on Qatargate, the scandal that continues to rock the European Parliament and really all the EU institutions. And we'll introduce you to one of the EU's newer leaders, Slovenia's businessman-turned-politician, Prime Minister Robert Golub. But first, I'm joined by Politico's top policy reporters, who are going to talk us through some of the big policy issues that look set to dominate in 2023. So we have Barbara Munz, our senior trade correspondent. Hi, Suzanne. Charlie Cooper, our senior energy correspondent. Hi, Suzanne. Carl Matheson, our senior climate correspondent. Hi, Suzanne. I can't believe you didn't say good day. Good day. And Mark Scott, Politico's chief technology correspondent. Good to be here. So happy New Year, everyone. Great to see you. Happy New happy Year, everybody. Year. Great to see you. Uh, Charlie, I think I'll start with you because energy was a big theme in the EU bubble 
2022. Um, how is it shaping up now for this year? What are some of the main issues on the agenda? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's not going to go away as a big issue. I think a, a common refrain towards the end of 2022 is that the the winter that the EU is really worried about is not necessarily this one in terms of energy supply, but, uh, but next one, winter 2023-2024. So that's going to be the big overarching story again. Uh, how can Europe get its gas supplies to a secure place ahead of next winter. I mean, because that's one of the headlines we've seen over the last few weeks has been the fact that gas prices have gone down and, and that things have not seemed as bad as people may have thought. Yeah, 100%. The early signs are pretty good. We've had a fairly mild winter. I mean, very mild, actually, in January, some record-breaking temperatures in Europe. And that has contributed to, yes, the decline in the wholesale gas price. The mild temperatures also mean that all that gas that's stored up in storage tanks across the EU is not being used as much as some people thought it would be across the EU. Storage facilities are still at about 83.5% full as of Monday, the, the 2nd of January, which is better than most people expected it to be. And that has a big impact on next winter as well, because the lower those storages go, the more gas has to be purchased on the global market uh, in 2023 without, of course, the EU's former big gas supply, Russia, of which, you know, very little Russian gas, or relatively speaking, now comes to the EU. So it's got to be bought on the global market in the form of LNG. And that is a very tight market in 2023. Right. And I mean, some of the specifics then that are going to be coming forward from the Commission, joint purchasing powers, we heard a lot about that, for example. Yeah. So in preparation, really, for this coming year, uh, the European Commission and uh, EU countries have put in place a few new uh, powers, which will they hope help them to kind of get cheaper gas on the global market. That includes joint purchasing, which is basically them becoming essentially a buyer's cartel, a kind of reverse OPEC for gas, where they use that kind of offer of a big customer base to try and secure a lower price on the global market. It will be interesting to see how that works this year, if it works. Uh, the big question mark on all of this for me is China. Uh, last year, China inadvertently did the EU a big favour by keeping its zero COVID policy in place, which really suppressed gas demand there meant they weren't as big a buyer of global LNG as they might have been. And that meant more of those stocks could come to Europe. With China now opening up, we will wait to see whether that, you know, whether we'll have more demand from China eating up those LNG supplies, driving up the global price. And what I said, like, like I said, it's a very tight market. Of course, China's had its surge in COVID in the, in the past few weeks, which puts some of that in doubt. But it's one to really watch in 2023. Interesting. I mean, another issue is on the electricity side. We're, we're expecting some kind of proposal from the Commission in March. That's right. Uh, the EU's big electricity market reform. We're expecting their proposals, as you say, in March. Uh, and then it'll be from member states to take a look at those. Now, this is going beyond just the emergency responses that we saw last year with things like joint purchasing, as we mentioned, and also the, the gas price cap, which I'm sure we all are very familiar with from previous discussions and, and, and endless news stories last year. Yes. Uh, that was the emergency response. The electricity market reform is a more long-term uh, response to the energy crisis. And it's about delinking the price of gas from the price of renewables, which are cheaper to produce. And it's about trying to pass on that cheaper production cost of renewables to consumers. But it's extremely complicated and there is some scepticism about the EU's ability to do this in a way that doesn't disincentivize uh, the development of renewables, which is not what we all want, obviously. Uh -huh. So one to watch there as well. Right. Look, moving to you, Carl, our climate guru. What an exciting time to be energy and climate reporters. What are the big issues standing out for you now as the year commences? 
Yeah, I think um, almost picking up where Charlie left off, there's these short to medium term interventions that the European Union can make to stabilise the energy prices, but they've been very clear that the long-term answer to this is a transition away from fossil fuels altogether in the in the energy system. So now it's about actually seeing that start to happen and they've brought forward their Repower EU proposals and they've um, got ideas about how to fund Just it. Just remind us about Repower EU. So Repower EU was, was something that was brought out in the wake of the invasion where the commission basically proposed a bunch of some, some of the measures that Charlie's talking about or the beginnings of that, but then also this bigger structural reform, which was a, a package of incentives to roll out energy efficiency measures and also clean energy to sort of essentially wean Europe off Russian fossil fuels over the coming decade. And what we're going to be looking for now is for infrastructure to start going into in a really significant way and also for the funding to really be agreed and released. So expecting more on that. I mean, like the big picture here in terms of, you know, the EU being a leader on, on climate change and you know, how is the war? Has, has that completely upended things? Is the EU still on track? Well, I, th- I think we're really at sort of rubber hit the road time for the Green Deal. So this was Ursula von der Leyen's climate and biodiversity vision that she brought in as commission president. And all the way through her or this commission, you've seen them pivot in the face of crises. So, you know, we've had COVID, we've had the war, and they've really each time they've pitched the Green Deal as the as one of the answers to these problems. So the Green Deal was the recovery trigger, the, the way to stimulate the economy by investing in renewable energies and energy efficiency and rolling out jobs related to that. And then obviously with getting off Russian fossil fuels, you've got another incentive. So they've been very adept in trying to frame this, but we actually haven't seen that much real uh, infrastructure going out, real money moving. So this is the year for the Green Deal to actually be rolled out. And that actually requires also national capitals. Yes. So what we actually haven't seen is the Green Deal being picked up in a massive way by governments all across Europe, where they've begun rolling out both through the extra budget money that they had um, in the wake of the pandemic. And now Solomon Alliance talking about more money for Repower EU. And then also we're talking about another tranche of new money in response to the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the US, um, the US climate legislation. legislation. Yeah, so yeah. each time these, these kind of crisis points hit, the EU is reaching for more money for the Green Deal as the answer. We really haven't seen, we've seen a lot of consumers say the gas prices are really high. I'm going to put a heat pump in. I'm going to put a solar panel in. So there's movement on the ground, but it's being consumer led. Governments have been really slow actually in the last year in response to the crisis to put in these really structural changes to the way that we're running our energy system. Barbara, you were going to come in there. Yeah, I just wanted to say that it's a discussion that we'll continue to see in the coming weeks and months. As Carl mentioned, we'll we'll have the whole discussion about the EU industrial policy as a response to high energy prices, but also to the American Inflation Reduction Act. One of the questions that will be is if we get new money or use existing money to support EU industry, do you do it to support the old industries like the chemical industries or do you do it to support new 
green industries. And Carl and I had a heated discussion on that in the sense that I heard a lot of officials saying, you know, we have to make sure that we protect the existing industries, right, especially in Western Europe. Whereas a lot of people that Carl speaks to, climate officials, actually see it as an opportunity to invest in, in climate. But is there some way you can kind of have a bit in between? I'm thinking of a big industry, cars, right? That came up in the because of the provisions that were included in the US Inflation Reduction Act. It was all about electric vehicles. Is there some way of kind of protecting this quote-unquote old industry, which is car production, but in a way that makes it more renewable, like electric cars. I mean, is, is there a way, is, is there some in between? Yeah, I think that that is definitely the EU goal, right, to kind of use this opportunity to have the transformation of certain industries like the automobile industry and at the same time make sure that the jobs that are there now stay in Europe or that we create new jobs. That is definitely the goal. Of course, you will always have certain lobbies that make sure that the current industries don't just go away or end altogether. And that is, is really a discussion that will continue to have in the coming weeks and months. Right, Charlie? Exactly. Some of those old uh, sort of really energy intensive industries like chemicals, like steel, that are really at the very sharp end, obviously, of the energy crisis, their costs are so high. They're the ones where there's, you know, there's genuine fears about uh, a spike in potential on unemployment as, you know, factories and, and, and firms go out of business. So they're the ones really sort of crying out for that support. But there's only so much of the pie that can go around. So do you save those industries and, and avoid the kind of social and potentially political consequences of losing those kind of old industrial bases? Or do you kind of give more of that money, as you say, to the sectors of the future? Yeah, It's a real kind of, you could just call it a crossroads moment, really, for the European economy. It's really interesting. Carl? From the climate perspective, this is the moment that has probably been coming for, you know, at least a decade where we've sort of been waiting for the big players in the global economy to begin moving their industry towards a clean energy industry. And as soon as you start seeing that, which we're seeing in China, we're seeing that in in the US now, there's a race for dominance, for dominance of these new industries. And I guess the choice that the EU will have to make in the coming year is, is it going, as Barbara says, to protect some of its old industries or is it going to go all out to compete with China and the US or in fact catch up with those countries now in some ways? I mean to bring it back in on this Barbara I mean just to break it down for some of our listeners I mean I'm, I'm simplifying this but you know last year we saw the United States introduce this new legislation the Inflation Reduction Act that the EU felt was protectionist and now we see a move by the EU to try and up its game in terms of its own industrial strategy, in terms of tech as well. We, Mark will come in on that in a second. But now the debate, if I'm right, is that in the next big EU summit, which is February, is how you're going to fund this. You know, will it be more EU money? Some countries say, hang on, we don't have an endless pot of money. Others are worried that deep-pocketed countries are basically protecting their own industries. You know, where do you see this thing going? Yeah, exactly. And I think at this point, it's still unclear in the sense that we have a lot of noise coming out of France, right? They are really driving this um, with a French industrial protectionist agenda. We have Sweden that, interestingly enough, does now hold the presidency and is traditionally really the liberal pro-market free trading country that now, instead of trying to seal all these trade deals, we'll have to, you know, co-decide or arrange a compromise to make sure that we have a more robust industrial policy. It'd be 
because they're hosting, they're the chair of the six month presidency of the EU. So they will be in charge of chairing these meetings. Yeah, exactly. And so the last um, European Council instructed the commission to come up with some concrete proposals. Right. But you see a lot of divisions still within the EU and also within national governments, for example, in Germany, on what the best way forward on this is. And it is obviously the the kind of catalyzator was the Inflation Reduction Act, but it fits together with the high energy prices, with the climate agenda and the war in Ukraine, obviously, that you have this fear that, you know, jobs will get lost and that our industry is, is kind of collapsing. So that will definitely be a big team in the next weeks and months. Mark, um, what's on your agenda looking ahead now to 2023 in terms of tech? To be honest, I feel like a bit of a black sheep, or just <laughs> mostly because the issues I'm dealing with are maybe more midterm, where uh, everyone else is looking at short-term existential crises like climate change and energy prices. Um, two things. I think, first of all, we have to see 2023 of if Europe can kind of live up to its role as the so-called Western digital policeman. Like 2022 was all about creating these rules, these new antitrust rules, these new social media rules called the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. This year is all about figuring out if they actually work. So that involves building out teams, it involves potentially starting investigations. And the big question really is, is the commission up for it? Both of these pieces of legislation are going to get run by parts of the commission, one of which is DG Connect, who has never done this before, and they have a very small team right now. So I think it comes down to existential midterm crises, not the sort of Ukraine war, but things like, are we okay with Google being so dominant? You know, do we, what is the role of social media in in elections? All that stuff is going to really play out this year. But it's one of these questions where compared to the Ukraine crisis or the energy crisis, inevitably it's going to get pushed back. So what we've seen in the first two years of the commission is efforts to do this, but crises after crises take over and tech gets pushed back. But it's it, it's intensely political, really. I mean, in a way, Mark, again, you've also uh, got a very interesting job in that. I think, you know, the recent controversy of Twitter ownership, you know, elections coming up in America and indeed in the EU in 2024, where issues of disinformation, of manipulation in the digital sphere are going to be, you know, front and centre. Do you think, you know, the recent changes in terms of Twitter, for example, that that's going to impact how the DSA and the DMA, how these roll out now in the next year? I think it's going to show how limited effect this legislation will have in the short term. So as much as the Commission and Thierry Breton would like to say they're going to hold Elon Musk to account, that's just not going to happen. They don't have the people, they don't have the investigations, they don't have the muscle to do that yet. Come back in three years and then we'll see, right? So Twitter isn't changing. It's not going to change. And frankly, whatever Terry Breton wants to do, it involves going through a long, lengthy legal process, which yeah. is going to take two to three years. I mean, it's, it's interesting, though, looking back. I remember I was here previously in Brussels and, you know, back in 2014, 15, 16, the EU was... I suppose, ahead of the US when it came to tech regulation. You know, it clashed with the US under the Obama administration about regulating tech. So in a way, it's always been that bit ahead, I think, of of the US. But as you say now, the proof will be in the pudding. I mean, trying to implement these two colossal pieces of legislation, the DMA and the DSA, is going to be the big test uh, uh, this year. I mean, as well as regulation, Mark, there's also the issue of tech itself, you know, the development in the tech sector, etc. Where do you see things going in 2023? I think the Commission and the EU as a, as a whole needs to basically dip into its pocket and find more money. It needs more money for AI. It needs more money for so-called quantum computing and whatever the next level of tech is going to be. Otherwise, they're going to leave it to the US and China to move forward. 
Um, Barbara, just to bring you back in, one thing also is slightly different. It's the issue of, we've mentioned about protectionism versus free trade. What is the status on on the EU's trade deals? Do we expect to see any movement on this uh, in the next year? Yeah, there was a lot of anticipation for the Swedes to take over the presidency of the Council of the EU because of their free trade agenda and also because the pieces of the puzzles are kind of fitting together in the sense that the invasion of Ukraine and also the EU's relations with China, which are more tense, have kind of driven the momentum to seal more trade deals with other parts of the world, more friendly parts of the world. So we expect, um, or the Commission hopes, to seal a deal with countries like Mexico, Australia, and then um, more towards the end, before the elections of 2024, they also hope to kind of agree on a trade deal with the Mercosur countries of Latin America, so Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay. And I have to give a mention to Brexit, it's still there. So let's see if there's any breakthrough on uh, trade agreements between the EU and the UK. There's some positive mood music happening now at the beginning of the year. There's a big anniversary in April coming up of the uh, Good Friday Agreement. So a lot of people in Brussels and London and Dublin and Belfast hope that that will give a new momentum to better relations in terms of trade, at least, between the EU and the UK. So on that positive note, uh, thank you to all our panellists, our policy gurus here in Politico, for joining us. Uh, Here's to the year ahead. I'm sure we'll be hearing your voices on our podcast uh, for the year, but keep reading us all on politico.eu. Thank you. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Suzanne. Now, to pick up on some of those bigger geopolitical trends that we mentioned there, I'm joined by Politico's editor-at-large and author of Brussels Playbook's Friday edition, Nick Vinicor. Hi, Nick. Hi, great to be here. Good to have you here in studio. Listen, what do you feel are going to be some of the big topics that the EU is going to face in 2023? Yeah, I mean, so many, but I think to boil it down, I would say one thing is that politics is, is back is going to be back this year. I think it started with Qatargate in a way. For me, that was the starting gun of a sort of big campaign season uh, that's going to take us all the way through 2023 to the 2024 elections. We saw that it started a campaign effectively. It started the European conservatives attacking the social Democrats uh, over corruption. And this just launches us right into a whole series of elections in Europe. So just to clarify, Nick, as you're mentioning there, I mean, most of the MEPs that were involved in the scandal were from the S&D, the socialist group. And we've seen the EPP, the European People's Party, that's the biggest centre-right political group in the parliament. They have been quick to criticise the S&Ds over their involvement of this. And we may see some of those dynamics feeding into those uh, elections in 2024. Exactly. But in between now and then, we've got big elections in Greece, big election in Poland, big election in Portugal. These are all really high stakes elections for conservatives, especially who have lost a huge uh, figure in Angela Merkel are trying to hold on to their number one position in, in European politics. And I think we're just going to see this this politics play out internationally. It's also going to be a political year in the U.S. as we gear up to uh, 2024. I mean, on you mentioned there Qatargate, and we're going to be speaking to our uh, colleague Sarah Wheaton in a little bit later for an update on that. Uh, but talk to us a bit more about why you think that's important. You were saying there about the elections. So explain a bit more about why you think this is going to affect those. So I don't think it's going to decide the election in Poland or Greece. 
but it is going to have a massive impact on the top jobs in this town, in Brussels. Do Who's going to be the new head of the European Commission? Who's going to head the parliament? These have been sort of locked down by the conservatives and everybody was saying, well, von der Leyen's a kind of a likely person to get reelected as a commission president. But now this scandal has totally sort of shaken things up. She will need to prove that she's able to reform the institution, all EU institution, yeah. that she's able to fight corruption here. And her political opponents will use this, are using this now to weaken and damage von der Leyen. Yeah, because I mean, this is one of the, the issues for the EU. It did affect one part of the EU and the commission have been trying to say, oh, it's not us, it's the parliament. But as you say there, it's actually an existential issue for the EU as a whole. You know, voters don't really distinguish between the European Parliament and the Commission. So this is something that they all have to contend with. On the very intimate, these elections, specific elections, I mean, Poland, a huge country, one of the biggest in the EU and obviously clashing with Brussels so much on rural law. But of course, Poland has taken the lead, the moral high ground, if you like, when it comes to, uh, and rightly so, on the, on the refugee and the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Um, Ukraine also promises to be a big topic this year. We're going to have the 12-month anniversary of the start of the war in February. I mean, what are some of the themes there we're going to hit? Thank you. That was one of my, uh, my speaking points. <laughs> uh, we didn't rehearse this. No. Uh, no, I was going to say, you know, of course, Ukraine, the whole year is going to be defined by Ukraine. I think Ukraine is going to continue to pull all of Europe towards the United States, towards the transatlantic relationship. And it's going to reinforce the presence of Poland, of the Eastern states, and so on, and sort of disrupt the Franco-German leadership of the EU. I don't really see that much happening there, except that mm. Europe will have to continue to think sort of more geopolitically. Yeah. I think what we'll see this year is a battle of the models in Europe, the free trading model versus the sort of more top-down, dirigiste, protectionist model, whichever you want to call it. No matter what happens in Ukraine or elsewhere, there's a move towards more self-sufficiency on raw materials, on chips, on uh, manufacturing. This is the big challenge for Europe. It's not ready to defend itself yet, but it wants to become more economically self-sufficient. And now with the Swedish presidency starting, we're already seeing this kind of clash play out between, I think, what's French-led on one side, a geopolitical sort of Europe of power model versus a more of a small state free trading yeah. thing. And I think so far, it's really the French who are kind of winning this. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a point as well that you've got this group of countries who are naturally more free trade in Europe. And one of those for so long was Britain. I mean, it was a big player. And with its exit from the EU, I think now as time goes on, you can see that those smaller, mostly smaller, free trade countries, those Nordic countries, the Netherlands, Ireland, you know, the Baltics, miss having this big player around the table who was always pushing for, you know, lesser regulation, essentially, more connections, economic connections with the US uh, and other countries. And yeah. let's see, you know, does France continue to cement its dominance when it comes to these kind of ideas uh, in yeah. the next year? Absolutely. Just just on that point, I think you're completely right. That's a huge shift. Uh, and you mentioned the Dutch. They used to be the sort of partner of the UK in Europe as a sort of free trading they have now aligned themselves much more with the French as a strategic partner, almost in an official capacity as their kind of main strategic partner in Europe. And that to me is so revealing. And you're looking at the pressure on the Netherlands with regard to China, with regard to its chips policy. 
it is the state aside is kind of winning the argument in some way. That's yeah. at least my view. But yeah. yeah, interesting, interesting one to watch. Anything else on the agenda for the coming year? Sure, I'll just throw a bonus one in there, oh, which wow. is for me um, about tech. I think it's a little bit of another oh shucks or oh shit moment for Europe on tech. We missed the big consumer revolution with Google, Facebook, and everything. There's a new revolution taking place, which is about artificial intelligence. I've been talking about it for years. The applications weren't great. Now the applications are starting to get absolutely stunning. Whoever controls this is going to have the gigantic enterprises of the next 10 or 20 years. And they're in the United States. They're not in China and they're not in Europe. And I think that will become an increasing preoccupation this year and in the coming years. Finally, Nick, one of the other issues that's kind of surprised us, I suppose, in this first week we're back in Brussels here has been the emergence of a story about health. We're now seeing EU countries meeting this week in Brussels to try and coordinate policy when it comes to the threat or possible threat of a new COVID surge coming from China. We're, what, nearly three years on from the start of the COVID pandemic, and yet the EU doesn't seem to be close to uh, securing or forging a common position on this. Yeah, uh, it does feel like deja vu in a way. We have mysterious, or not so mysterious anymore, illness coming from China. And I see the disunity narrative. I would just like to remind people that back in 2020, there was even more disunity. There was total confusion about what to do. What I remark is that actually fairly quickly, a majority of EU countries have decided that the thing to do is to start to restrict travel from China. Mm -hmm. This is a totally different policy response than during the first pandemic or first wave when uh, we didn't want to restrict travel from China. And what we did was impose draconian restrictions on European citizens that were, in fact, inspired by China. We're t doing things very differently. I think that's revelatory of the pandemic experience, for one. And for two, I think it's revelatory of an evolution in our China policy in that many countries have become more hawkish on, uh, on China, e even in the EU, especially on this health subject. So let's keep an eye on how this story develops, whether this is just a, a minor blip when it comes to health policy in Europe or it could emerge as one of the big stories of 2023. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the Qatargate scandal involving members and former members of the European Parliament isn't going away anytime soon. We'll bring you up to speed on what has happened over the holiday season. Plus, the new Slovenian Prime Minister, Robert Golub, on his switch from being an energy business mogul to politician. And how, in his view, his government differs from that of his predecessors, which clashed with Brussels on issues like media freedom and corruption. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. 
Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Qatargate. It's the phrase which has come to define a sprawling saga involving Qatar's alleged attempts to influence the European Parliament. First things first, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to listen to our final episode of 2022, which dives into this issue in great detail. We'll put a link in our show notes. But to catch up on what's happened since our episode aired in mid-December, we're joined now by Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent and author of our EU Influence newsletter. Hey there, Sarah. Hey, Suzanne. So look, bring us up to speed on what's been happening since this scandal uh, first broke in mid-December and we spoke last time. So when we spoke last time, several people had been arrested, the most prominent of whom was now former vice president of the European Parliament, Ava Kiley. Um, so she has been stripped of her vice presidential power and she is in jail. Also in jail are her partner, Francesco Giorgi as well as a former MEP named Pierre Antonio Panzeri. And uh, back in jail after briefly getting his freedom is a man named Nicolo Figa Talamanca. And he is the head of an NGO called No Peace Without Justice. And one thing that we're still missing are details of what the precise allegations are. But uh, given that we um, know that over a million and a half euros in cash were found in places like Ava Kylie's apartment, as well as some other homes. Um, and we have started hearing um, Belgian officials start to use terminology like bribery along with corruption. It's pretty clear that what we have on our hands is a case of undue influence from people linked to a foreign power. So there, were no, there was no special treatment for these people over Christmas. They spent the festive season behind bars. Indeed. I mean, to the extent that they got special treatment, we know at one point that some of them were moved from the Saint-Gilles prison, um, which is uh, right in the backyard of many a Politico uh, reader and podcast listener, to a slightly kind of fancier prison community at the Heron prison, which is right outside Zaventem Airport. So there were other developments, too, from Belgian prosecutors. Exactly. So the prosecutors have requested for immunity to be stripped from two sitting members of the European Parliament. One of them is a Belgian named Mark Tarabella. His home has already been searched, um, and he's the vice chair of the parliament's delegation for relations with the Arab Peninsula and co-chair of the sports group. So that was certainly relevant for Qatar um, ahead of the World Cup. His immunity uh, has been requested to be lifted, uh, as has Andrea Cozzolino. Um, he also has a key role um, related to the Middle East. And prior to this scandal boiling up, he was in charge of the Socialist and Democrats groups' efforts to kind of put out statements about issues like human rights and other urgent issues regarding foreign governments and international affairs. Um, he's also said, uh, while he has denied wrongdoing, uh, that he's very open to seeing his immunity lifted. 
Interesting. Look, let's see what happens uh, in terms of further move by Belgian prosecutors. And as you say, seeking to lift immunity more MEPs uh, is a sign that this saga is, is by no means finished. What's happening next, though, in terms of the European Parliament? Are we expecting some big development in the next few months, for example, as the EU tries to, frankly, clean up its image? So there are two things to watch in the European Parliament coming up. So one of them is this question of immunity. So MEPs have legal immunity from prosecution, and the idea of that is supposed to be to protect them from arbitrary political persecution. It's not meant to protect them from corruption allegations. But basically, this right can only be removed by their fellow members of parliament. So in a few weeks, President Roberta Metzola will call for this immunity to be lifted. She has to do that at the beginning of the next plenary. Then the relevant committee known as jury in EU speak will take it on, will discuss it. They do even have a right to hold a hearing uh, with the members, but that hearing sadly would be private. We would certainly be very interested to watch that hearing. But basically, after they, you know, recommend to have this immunity be lifted, it can't actually be finalized until the next plenary session. So um, the earliest that we could see this immunity be lifted is in February. The other thing to watch more broadly in Parliament, and this we don't have a clear timeline on, but obviously there's a lot of momentum for changes to the Parliament's ethics rules. So one thing that emerged from this is that former MEPs have access to the parliament to come in and basically do whatever they want, including lobbying without having to have any transparency. That was the issue with former MEP Panzeri, who never registered himself or his NGO fight impunity. Um, So there's a call to make sure that nobody can get into the parliament without registering. There's also a push for more transparency for third countries lobbying acts. Again, it's totally legal to lobby and to try to make your case in the European Parliament, but there's just a push to have more transparency about that. There are also just other kind of longstanding issues that that people have always kind of scratched their head about. So the Parliament passed kind of broad whistleblower protections for just regular people working at regular companies in the EU, but they didn't make those whistleblower protections apply to the European Parliament. So there's a push to actually have that. Interesting. The Parliament also has these friendship groups that are just basically an MEP can be like, hey, I'm interested in this country. The country's embassy will run this friendship group. And it's sort of like an easy way to just kind of run junkets and have special treatment for MEPs that are already sympathetic. And we should say that... um, Other types of interest groups, not just foreign governments, do these as well. So there's a push to maybe get rid of these friendship groups. Various ethics reforms are on the table. Also, of course, enforcement for the ethics rules that are already in place. So President Metzla has an ambitious agenda, but a lot of the things that she wants to see would need uh, buy-in from her colleagues. So we'll see if any of these changes happen while the pressure is still there. Great. Okay. well, thanks for that update, Sarah. Thank you, Suzanne. Happy New Year. Same to you. We'll talk to you soon. Before we go, now Qatar Gate has focused mainly on the European Parliament, but there are concerns that this scandal could damage the legitimacy of other institutions, particularly ahead of the European elections in 2024. The scandal broke in mid-December, just as EU leaders were meeting for their regular summit. And in a measure of how seriously this issue is being taken by EU Prime Ministers and Heads of State, the scandal overshadowed other discussions at the Council. Our colleagues Lily Byer and Victor Jack 
sat down with Slovenia's Prime Minister, Robert Golub. They spoke to him about a range of issues, everything from energy to his own career. But it was hard to escape the story of the day, Qatargate. Well, first, it could have negative impact if not addressed properly. Now, from what I've heard also yesterday by the president of the parliament at the council, um, it seems like that decisive measures have been put in place. And it was kind of a... uh, I was stupefied by hearing what kind of a regime they had up till now when it comes to former parliamentaries and former members and former staff members, which is even worse, meaning that there was practically no control over what's going on within the parliament, which is really mind-boggling to me. I'm new to the scene. It's something that is totally, wow, that's not democratic. That's really the, the way how it was organized up till now. It, it's sort of inviting these things to happen. Now, as Golub says, he's a newcomer to Brussels, but he's not exactly a political novice. He did a short stint nearly a quarter of a century ago as a state secretary, and he served for two decades as a city council member in Nova Gorica. But it's his business acumen that has really put him on the map. With a PhD in electrical engineering, Golub co-founded an energy trading company, Genai, where he remained chairman until 2021. In January 2022, Golub took over a small new Green Party in Slovenia and revamped it into what's now called the Freedom Movement. And in April last year, the party won 41 seats in the 90-seat National Assembly, giving it enough votes to elect Golub as Prime Minister. Lily asked Golub why he'd made the switch from business to politics. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I can hardly say it was uh, the change was instigated my, by my own decision. Uh, not it was not an independent decision. Uh, it was more to do with the situation in uh, my country uh, than anything else. So um, after living under, let's call them stressful conditions uh, under the previous government for like two years within the group of my friends or my colleagues, we came to a conclusion that something has to be done while still there is time to do that because we could see that the rule of law being dismantling, the, the institutions or the subsystems were really being, like, not really eroding, but picking piece by piece. Uh, yeah, well, dismantling is, the, I think, the, be- the best word. And, and the same when goes for media freedom. And we just came to a realization, a realization that we don't want to. We realized we don't want to live in a country like that. Uh, at the beginning, there were a bunch of us at the end of... It was only me, but nevertheless, I'm still here. So it was, again, it was uh, almost a forced decision. But uh, I don't mind about it. Under his predecessor, Janez Jansa, Slovenia was marked by a decline in democratic standards. A Freedom House report last year indicated that the country faced the sharpest democratic decline of all 29 countries that it monitors, based on factors such as the legislative process, media independence and corruption. It's a decline Golub is intent on changing. 
my first priority was to bring back the normality to the functioning of our society. When I say normality, I mean it truly normality, I mean that there is no everyday hassle from the authorities to ordinary people. It doesn't matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter whether it's through media or through judicial system or through police system or through uh, health system. It was hassling the population practically every day. It was a, a little better if living on the countryside, and I do live on the countryside. That's why I re- it took me a year longer than maybe people living in the city. What's going in the city is what's going on, but nevertheless. I think that was really the first priority, and that remains the first priority. So we want to see this ma- mandate being as normal as possible. And when I say normal, that uh, that can only be achieved if we really work on open discussions within the society, but open discussions that are based on a respectful and a dignified dialogue within the society. That doesn't mean that we want to give open space to those who were in government, that they continue with whatever they were doing, especially when it comes to fake news and hate speech. But it means that we want to address the population in this uh, respectful and dignified way. When sitting around the table with his fellow EU leaders, Golob's experience as a former energy executive must no doubt make him a valuable new voice at a time when Europe is struggling with soaring energy costs. Okay, there are some who say the next winter is going to be much worse. Uh, there, there are some who say, well, maybe some of the measures which were already undertaken will give better results than expected and that we will be able to get through the winter in a similar way that we are doing today. At the end of the day, nobody has the crystal ball and it is going to be dependent on the weather, mm-hmm. whether the winter is harsh or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apart from weather, because weather could really mess with the system anytime. Mm-hmm. But apart from weather, I think united and coordinated approach when it comes to joint purchasing uh, could be the answer to that question. If commission- Now what he's referring to here is an agreement made by the EU's energy ministers to aggregate EU gas demand by jointly purchasing gas on the market. The hope is that the EU's combined political and economic weight will enable its countries to secure the gas supplies they need for this new year. I think these concerns can be really put away. Plus, the other thing is that the some of the gas reductions are going to stay permanent and that will help as well. So next winter, it's not about we need to start from previous winter to get the reductions, uh, the gas uh, consumption down. It's really from this one. And we already see the reductions uh, going on. So I think it's, even while, while speaking to other leaders, those who shall be mostly concerned, more optimistic than, than before. And on that optimistic note, that's it for our first episode of 2023. If you're searching for a New Year's resolution, it could be to follow EU Confidential wherever you're listening so you never miss our episodes. And we always love hearing from our listeners. So email us with any ideas or feedback. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Next week, EU Confidential is heading to Stockholm as Sweden takes the helm of the Council of the EU for the next six months. So be sure to keep an eye out for that in your podcast feed. This week's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. 
Thanks to Ellen Bonin and our production team and to our editor, James Randerson. And thanks to you for listening. Happy New Year. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.